Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, guys, so many things happening. Um, I actually had this huge dental problem this morning. Uh, last night, I cracked one of my teeth on um, a piece of candy and uh, kind of exposed the nerve a little bit. So this morning, first thing, I was like, ah, dentists who are open on Saturdays. And um, anyway, I managed to get that uh, taken care of at a local place here in, uh, in Denver called Comfort Dental, which was, they were just, I, I'm, I'm, they're, I'm not endorsing them or, or they're not a sponsor or anything, but I just have to say, if you're here in Denver, that's the place to go, man. They were amazing. Probably the best dental experience I've had. Anyway, so, um, so it's still a little uh, over here, but, um, but there's actually not any pain, and, um, and I'm, I'm just kind of really amazed and surprised by that. So um, anyway, so this is the, the, the studio space here. I'm still working out uh, putting it together and, getting it, and figuring out how this should all work in terms of camera-ing it and all of that. I've got, these, uh, I've got this little shelf set up back here and some books and, and some other things around, and I, I'm trying to set this up. I'm going to get some pictures on this wall behind me. There's, some of them are still on order. And uh, so this will be a, a bit of a better space and, and maybe get some soundproofing put up too. But it's happening. This is, this is actually my, my dedicated space for this and I'm very, very happy about it. And I wanted to give a huge shout out to all of my Patreon supporters. Uh, thus far, you guys are amazing. You're what's allowing me to do this. And I wanted to let you guys know I finally got these little pins, these lapel pins made that you can put, you know, on which say, think, it's not illegal yet. <laughs> so I had these made for those people who sign up on Patreon of $20 or more, um, just, to, just as a little, literally a token of my appreciation. <laughs> and uh, there's another tier I also set up where if you go for 50, which is, I think, uh, you know, uh, unbelievably uh, amazing, um, then I'll send you a Facts Matter, a hashtag Facts Matter t-shirt uh, that I've created. So. I'm just trying to, you know, get some get some uh, appreciation for those patrons who really go above and beyond. But I wanted to make it super clear that regardless of any little tokens I'm throwing around, I appreciate all of it, and um, and I really want to acknowledge all of you guys who are who are doing whatever you can because I know some of you are um, are stretching it a little bit in order to be able to support this channel, and I I appreciate it. All right, guys. Let's go ahead and get on with your questions this week. Christine Turner, do you have any idea who the people in David Miscavige's entourage are? What are their job titles? Miscavige's entourage changes over time as post titles change, functions and importances and priorities change. And I can't speak super intelligently on this because it's not like I have direct experience with it except as a very, very distant observer of his activities and, and, and the people who he hangs around with or who are in his inner circle, so to speak. Um, and a lot of the post titles wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, I mean, I'll throw a couple out, um, but if you haven't watched the, the big video I made about Scientology's organizational madness and the whole hierarchy of Scientology, then I don't know that, that it's going to really mean a whole lot. But um, he has, um, you know, like for example, there was a, a particular person who had the post title of uh, WDC Ideal Orgs. Okay, that's the I, watchdog committee chairman or watchdog committee member 
uh, for ideal orgs, which of course means is just gibberish to people outside of, you know, people who know the intricacies of the Scientology organizational structure. Um, but that would, that was somebody who was in his inner circle for a while. I don't know if that person still is. I doubt it. The, the, the titles have changed, you know, as priorities change, like I mentioned. Um, but as far as his staff goes, what I can say is in terms of the people who follow him around from place to place to place and are constantly with him, um, he has a, he has his own personal chef. He has, or at least he used to, I'm sure he still does. He has a driver who, um, uh, actually looks an awful lot like him. I used to mistake the two for each other, and I don't think that's by accident. Um, he's got bodyguards. I think he hires uh, outside for that, but he also has internal Sea Org security people who uh, are known to you know, be with him or follow him around. So I think the security detail is, it changes uh, again over time as as people go in and out of positions of trust around him. That's the main thing, is loyalty and trust. Um, he's, uh, like all dictators and, and authoritarians, uh, it's all about you know, his whim as to whether he trusts you or doesn't trust you, or whether you've slighted him in some fashion, um, you know, whether it's real or imagined, and whether you get the, you know, the uh, um, status and benefit of being in his inner circle, according to what we've heard from Mark Headley and other people from Gold, that's not much of a status at all. And people generally know that when they get into that area, um, you know, they better mind their P's and Q's and they're constantly on their toes because otherwise they're going to get, you know, uh, shipped off to the equivalent of, uh, you know, Scientology Siberia, whatever that might mean for, for different people at different times. So, um, so and, and he's also, he has a, a personal assistant that used to be his wife. Shelly Miscavige, and when he exiled her, uh, we think to the you know mountain base of uh, the Church of Spiritual Technology up by our Lake Arrowhead in California. We think that's where she's located. We have a good reason to think so, according to Tony Ortega's reporting. But regardless of where she is, she's out of his inner circle. And a woman named Lou uh, Stukenbrock. I'm not sure what her last name is now, because Stukenbrock was her married name, and and her husband died. So Lou is his personal assistant, as far as I know. Um, you know, we don't know whether that's still the case or not, but she certainly was for a number of years. Uh, and that's really about everything I can say about that. So I hope that's helpful to you. Gary Lulu. As you already know, I'm a child of the Deep South. I see all the time and all around me friends of mine who possess this fervent faith in a God of all types. They are good people, far be it from me, to dissuade anyone who believes in a god, especially if they believe that it does improve their life. However, I just don't have, and now that I look back on my life, never had a belief that strong. Where do you think that comes from? I wonder because these people seem so spiritually fulfilled and hopeful. Oh man, Gary, this is, <laughs> this, is, this is the subject of whole books, you know? I mean, I have a friend who's a PhD, uh, candidate, I think. He's, he's well up there along his degrees, and he has devoted his entire study to fervor and fervent belief and the reasons why people have these beliefs. So I'll do my best here, but you know, realize this is short format. Um, <laughs> so there are various reasons people fall into or have religious beliefs, and uh, this has, these have to do with being raised with them. 
um, and accepting them as true. Usually uh, when there's some degree of fervor or fervent belief, then you've had personal experiences along the line that the person has interpreted as being of spiritual importance or um, or maybe they feel like God talked to them personally or they had some kind of, they saw, had some vision or an epiphany. Um, there's lots and lots of things that can cause epiphanies or religious experiences. Um, it doesn't, you don't just have to do drugs or alcohol in order to experience something like that. Drugs and alcohol, uh, especially um, psychotropics we're learning, actually do things in our brains, do things to our brains that can be created naturally through meditation, for example. I just saw a whole, a whole talk on this. So um, my point being not that, you know, if you go meditate, you're going to see God. My point is that, uh, although you might, actually, because meditation actually creates the same kind of brain phenomena in some people as LSD does, so, or psilocybin uh, does. So, you know, uh, so you can have quite interesting experiences and visions and ideas of, of reality based on, uh, you know, what you're doing and how you're practicing and living your life. So, um, so anyway, so I would think that in growing up with a particular belief, you create a confirmation bias that that is reality. Uh, just like when I grew up, I believed that the reactive mind was real. I believed we were spiritual entities called Thetans. I believed we lived past lives. And everything around me reinforced that belief because all the people we knew were Scientologists. So we all talked that way and talked as though that was how reality was. So you create this group think idea, right? And that means that, you've, that you're creating a, a reality with all the people in that group that they use to interpret the events and, and things that happen to them and around them. So, and they'll, they'll filter it through this confirmation bias. So um, where one person might, you know, all, like today, for example, I was commenting on this to my wife. I, I almost slipped and fell when I got out of the shower today. Just as, you know, harmless. My foot was wet. I, I was on a wood floor and, and, and I slipped. Well, had I been in Scientology, I would have interpreted that as, oh, I'm not PTS, but I almost am, right? Whereas if I was somebody who believed in karma, I might think to myself, ooh, whoa, just avoided a little bit of, you know, bad karma there. Guess I was a little, you know, guess I did a good deed today to outwit, you know, to, to balance that out or something or however that works. I don't claim to be an expert on talking about karma. Or if I was... A, you know, a deep Christian believer, I might think that the devil might have, you know, tried to slip me up there, but my faith in God kept me on my feet and kept me from having a nasty accident and hurting myself. So any, that's what I mean by how we interpret events. And that has a lot to do with our belief system and how we view the world. So, um, so I think some of the fervent belief that you see in people around you is a reinforcement of a belief system that they might learn early on in life, and then they just constantly reinforce that belief and have it reinforced to them by the people around them who also share that belief system. Now, that's just one way that people can get into a fervent belief, okay? You can also convert somebody who maybe has sinned or has done things he's, he or she is ashamed of or they want to change things in their life somehow because they feel that the path they've been on hasn't really been 
you know, conducive to their survival for some reason, and they find God or find Jesus or, you know, who knows, they find Buddha. I mean, it could be whatever. Uh, Allah, you know, I mean, you know, talk about, you know, how people get involved in, uh, in Islam. So, no matter, again, it's, it's dogmatic, uh, generic here. I'm not, it doesn't really matter what the dogma is that you're talking about. The, the, the method of, of conversion um, or the, the, the fact of conversion and how it happens would be similar from one place or belief system to another. So, in this case of a midlife conversion, you can get a real fervent belief if the person, again, has some kind of experience um, with the conversion process that convinces them that something supernatural has happened to them or something amazing has happened to them and now they've accepted this new faith and they will again interpret everything in their life according to the before and after of accepting this belief, right? Or accepting this idea as true. So, um, so you have some guy who, you know, this happens in AA. You get people who go into AA programs who are drunks or who are drug addicts or something. Uh, well, obviously alcoholics, sorry. And um, they accept some sort of, you know, they, they give themselves over to a higher power. They accept the, you know, the, the, the power of God or Christ in their hearts. And they, you know, literally will time and date everything in their life from before and after they were a sinner to having been saved. And they will attribute all good things that happen to them from that point forward to their salvation or to their epiphany. And they will um, attribute every bad thing that happens to them to something, some weakness in their, on their part or something they did wrong um, personally, like, like they themselves did, not the, the higher power didn't have anything to do with it. And they need to get in good with the higher power again and, you know, through good deeds or whatever the rules or guidelines of the group are. So, um, so that's where, those are a couple examples, just a couple, of where, you know, fervent religious beliefs comes from. Um, it can, uh, you know, people believe in the supernatural or they believe in a higher power or God for all kinds of reasons. One, it makes them feel good. So there's all kinds of motivated reasoning going on there. If you watched my podcast this week, which I hope you guys will, not too many folks have, and it's about this thing about motivated reasoning and you know how and why we believe things because they feel good, not having, having nothing to do with the facts. <laughs> so I talked about that in my podcast this week. Um, that has a big part to do with religious belief. Now, everything I'm saying just to, just to be clear here, and maybe I should have prefaced this question or my answer this way, but um, none of what I'm talking about speaks to the validity or the truth or falseness of the belief. You can, you can, it could be true or it could be false, and everything I've said here is still true, still valid, okay? So none of what I'm saying here speaks to whether, the, whether there is or isn't a God. I always have to put those disclaimers out there and I usually do it too late and people get all riled up and I have to hear about it, but uh, that's fine. You know, if you want to comment at me, go right ahead. Um, I'm not speaking to the, to the validity of the belief. I'm speaking to the fervent, the fervency of the belief. Um, people believe in um, a higher power because they are afraid of death. That is a huge, huge, huge issue for human beings. Um, it's almost, I would say it's almost universal. 
Um, and we have a, a very hard time conceiving of not being around anymore, uh, of, of not being, uh, we, it's hard for us to conceive of our own non-existence. It's nearly impossible. So, um, so we always have this sort of inherent idea that we're always going to be around. If you don't have that idea, you are the exception. You are not the rule, <laughs> okay? And it's totally fine if you, if you have that idea and you accept death and it's no big deal for you and you're ready to go, but realize that you are in a huge, a very, very tiny minority of people on this planet. Most people on this planet are absolutely terrified of dying and they can't even conceive of not being around anymore, so they have a belief system that they put in place to give them some kind of uh, structure and, and focus for where, they're, where they feel they're going. And it gives them a great deal of comfort to feel that way. It gives them a, a, a tremendous amount of relief to know that when their body dies, it's not the end of them. And that comfort is actually something that, you know, I'm, I'm loath to want to take that away from people. It's something I personally struggle with uh, because I don't believe in a higher power. So I, I do struggle with that idea because it's difficult for me. So anyway, so that's, um, that's another reason why people will believe and then, they, and then if questioned or challenged about it, they will double down. They will go, hey man, you're, you know, because inside, deep in their brain, what, you know, when you're attacking a religious belief, you're attacking their sense of eternal security. And who wants that attacked? Who wants to have that challenged? No one. Literally nobody. It's, you know, it's already maybe on stilts already because of evidence or, or, or uh, contradictory information or arguments they've had or their own uncertainties about the belief system. So you come along and start, you know, trying to chop at the, at the uh, foundations of their belief. Be prepared for a fight because it's coming, you know. So there you go. David Anderson. What is atonement? and a liability formula. Could you please go into detail about these topics? If you could remember or create good examples of the situations when these would be used. <laughs> oh, sure. Liability formulas are tossed out like candy in Scientology, especially in the Sea Org. Um, basically, and it is atonement. That is a Scientology version of atonement. They never use that word, by the way. Um, but they do use uh, lower conditions or lowers. You're in lowers. Okay, there's a scale of conditions in Scientology which are considered operating states and uh, they start at the top with power, affluence, normal, emergency, danger, and then non-existence. Below non-existence, the person has ceased to be a group member or part of the activity that the condition formulas relate to. Uh, for example, a Scientologist or, a, a, but it could be any group. Uh, at all. Could be a member of an organization, could be an employee at a job, it could be a Boy Scout, it could be any, any group you're part of or any activity you're part of, including a marriage, a family, you know, it doesn't have to be structured, organized groups. Um, but if you're part of one of these activities, then, and you go into a place where you are actively harming the group rather than helping it and working for its uh, furtherance or, or, you know, for its benefit, if you're actually working against the group or you're considered to be working against the group, 
then you go into these lower conditions, which means lower than non-existence. You have liability, doubt, enemy, treason, and confusion. Okay, that's the scale. And so liability is right below non-existence. It's the last step to get back into non-existence where you can become a group member again and, get, and be part of the accepted activity. So with liability, you have four steps. The first one is um, decide who are one's friends. So this step is an effort by Hubbard to get you to realize that you have stepped outside the bounds of the group and those were your friends. And you got to figure out if you're going to get back in that group who your friends actually are. Are you friends with the enemy of the group? Are you, you know, with Scientology, for example, are you with the Sykes? Are you with the SPs? Are you with the bad guys? Are you with Leah? Are you with Chris Shelton? Or are you with us? So you have to make that decision. Who are your friends, right? The second step is to deliver an effective blow to the enemies of the group one has been pretending to be part of. So you've been in this lower condition, you've been a bad boy, you've been doing bad things. That's the assumption made when you are assigned a liability condition. And so now you have to prove to this group of people that you want to get back in good graces with that you're actually on their side and that they're your friends, they're the people you want to hang with. So you have to deliver an effective blow to the enemies of that group. So if you're going to go in, go back into Scientology, for example, you're going to, you know, you're, and you never really left Scientology. I mean, this language is very extremist and very authoritarian. Uh, you know, you're, you're no, I, you know, you're no longer with us. You know, it's this kind of attitude, you know, I, but mom, I, I love you guys, you know, and, and I'm your son. I don't have a son. You know, it's this kind of melodramatic nonsense that goes on with these condition formulas. I just wanted to say that. But um, anyway, so you're in a liability condition. You have to atone. You have to make up the damage. So you have to deliver an effective blow. And that means um, anything that, that qualifies as that. But it has to be despite personal danger. Okay, you, the, the whole step reads, deliver an effective blow to the enemies of the group one has been pretending to be part of, despite personal danger. And if there is no personal danger in what you do, then people will reject your atonement or your, your, you know, your propitiation project um, because they, hey, you, this wasn't dangerous to you at all. So you got to do something that has some kind of risk connected with it, or at least write it down when you're showing other people about this in, the, in step number four. You have to get across to them that this was a significant thing that you did. So uh, it, this could be anything like, you know, like a Scientologist, for example, might um, say, okay, I'll go to a, um, a outside a psychiatric hospital and I'll pass out Way to Happiness books from L. Ron Hubbard. It's so to spread the word of L. Ron Hubbard and to get, or I will spread, I will pass out anti-psychiatry literature from the Citizens Commission on Human Rights to everybody who walks into the psychiatric facility or is coming out of it. Hey, did you read this? Did you know this? And the, the personal danger there, of course, is that you could get kicked off the property. People could get in your face. Um, you know, you could get, uh, as, a, as a Scientologist standing outside a psychiatric hospital, who knows what what sort of nasty things you think might happen to you, but that could be interpreted as personal, you know, danger of some kind, right? And so you would do something like that, some kind of a, some kind of make up the damage or, or deliver an effective blow step. The third step 
is make up the damage done by personal contribution far beyond the ordinary demands of a group member. And this usually involves working late, late into the night, all night long. I did many projects where I was working all night long on something um, because I was trying to make up the damage that I did, right? I was a bad guy. I didn't do my job. I was, you know, given this lower condition. And so now I got to work my butt off to show, hey, I'm, I'm with the program. I'm a good guy. And so after I've delivered my effective blow, I then have to work my ass off to show, hey guys, let me back in the group, which is the fourth step, uh, which is basically apply for re-entry to the group by uh, writing all of this down, all the stuff you've done on these first three steps, you write down, and then you have to give it out to everybody in the group or the majority of the group, and you have to get a majority of them to sign off on it. And this is literally involves a person running around with a clipboard or a piece of paper with the condition formula on it, sometimes multiple copies, and you pass them out to people like at lunch and dinner, you'd see people running around doing their liability formulas, and they'd be passing them out and having people read them and answer any questions about it and get them to sign off, I agree that this person should be allowed back in the group. And there was usually an approval column and a disapproval column. Um, and people would, you know, sign off on it in one of those two columns. And if you got a majority of the group to say, hey, you're okay, then you're back in the group. And most of the time people were pretty forgiving and, and pretty chill on it because, you know, what else were they going to do? If, they, if, they, if the majority of people rejected it, though, you'd have to go back and do more work. And they'd usually be not too shy about telling you where they think you screwed up or that your delivering an effective blow was not an effective blow, or you didn't make up the damage, or this step about who your friends are doesn't, is, I, I don't agree with this, this doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, you have to be a little bit of a salesman when you're getting this liability formula signed because people are gonna give you a hard time about some aspects of it, and you either have to deal with that and get them to agree, or they sign off on the disapproved column and then, you know, you don't want too much of that because because uh, you don't want people getting the idea that you're, you know, not a good guy and you're not with the program. And mostly people want to get out of these liability conditions because it costs them money and time and, and so much effort to get out of them. So that's how that works in Scientology. TJB fan, I just want to confess something. Seems like most of these videos have people who join the Sea Org to help other people or mankind in general, yourself included. In spite of how wonderful this sounds, it never motivated me at all. When I joined the Sea Org, it was entirely for selfish reasons. I believed I would get the whole bridge for free, and I stayed away from all SO recruiters until gold recruiters came to town. I really wanted to learn and use state-of-the-art sound recording technology because I am an audiophile and I had heard of ClearSound. I saw gold as the perfect solution to all things. Get the tech under my belt and get the bridge for free. I had no thoughts for the people of the planet. When I failed my sec checks I got during the EPF and was rejected for gold, the main reason I stayed was because I had burned my bridges behind me having sold my car and spent my little remaining cash. I had no confidence I could just leave, find a job and a place to live. I was stuck, so I stayed. During the ordinary trials of Sea Org life, I never heard people talking about fulfilling their purpose of helping people. These were just things that got mentioned at events, etc. So I don't know just how self-sacrificing the average SO member really strives to be for the public. I don't know, maybe I'm just selfish. What say you?
Yeah, you selfish bastard. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, my experience with joining the Sea Org was that I did it because it, it was the responsible thing to do. I was doubling down on my beliefs in Scientology and, and the efficacy of the tech and the policy. And I, that's why I joined. I felt an obligation and a duty to do it. So that was my thing. Now, if I go back to when I first joined staff, though, in Santa Barbara, that had more to do with status than it did with saving the world. I was 17 years old. I was fresh out of high school. I didn't really know anything. And I had no real world experience of any kind. So I thought that saving the world sounded like a great idea. And I did want to be part of something that was doing that. But on a more immediate basis, I joined staff because I was going to be trained as a senior course supervisor. And I was going to have a higher status than anyone else in the, in the local Santa Barbara church. Uh, I was going to have to go down to LA, get this special training from Sea Org members, and then I was going to come back and be this kick-ass course room supervisor. So that motivated me to join because I thought that there would be some status involved with that. I also thought that we'd get paid. I did not realize, joining staff, that, that, that it was a voluntary job and that I'd be struggling for the next eight years trying to make ends meet. I had no idea that was going to be the case. I thought staff got paid. And so, um, so I was looking forward to getting money. And it was a huge problem for me when I found out that wasn't really the case. And I'd made this commitment and had to, had to honor it. So, um, so those were a couple of the motivations for me to join staff. I am sure that there are plenty of people in the Sea Org who had your experience, and I'm sure there's plenty of people in the Sea Org who had mine. I talked to many people during my years in the Sea Org who were very dedicated because they truly thought that what they were doing was changing the world in a better for the better. I know lots of people I met in the Sea Org who also didn't really care too much about the planet or people in general. They were kind of introverted angry, upset people who were, you know, and I used to wonder why did, how did this person even get here? You know, um, cause they were just these like kind of grumpy old men and stuff, you know, <laughs> or grumpy old women. I mean, just people, you were kind of like, wow, how are you even here? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't really seem like we're on the same page, but they were just as dedicated to being in the Sea Org as I was. And I've had, you know, conversations over the years with people who are in and, and since leaving, you know, people who left the Sea Org. So, you know, it's a, I don't know if it's a spectrum. I don't know that I'd call it that. I think I would just say that people who come into Scientology and then go into the Sea Org do so for individual reasons. And I know as a recruiter, I mean, I recruited Sea Org members for a year. And I got 11 or 12 people in the Sea Org, I think 11 of them in this year period of time. And I got a lot of people on the staff. And I pushed the Save the Planet narrative. Uh, I made a whole video about what I used to do with that. Um, and I went into quite a bit of detail about it. And I laid out this whole, you know, doom and gloom picture of, of the planet going to hell in a handbasket and the Sea Org being the only people who were turning, turning this whole thing around. So that was my motivation. That was the motivation that I knew from a lot of other recruiters as to why they had joined. So I think that's where I kind of got the idea that it was a fairly widespread thing because um, that was my experience with it. But I'm not here to say every single person who's in the Sea Org or in Scientology is the epitome of altruism and they're only there for purely unselfish reasons. I mean, getting the bridge for free 
was definitely a motivation for me to join staff because I didn't, I knew I wasn't going to have tens of thousands of dollars to pay for all this stuff. And I didn't really want to go make tens of thousands of dollars just to pay for this stuff. But working as a staff member, oh, that sounded okay. Make money, get up the bridge, have status, have people respect me. I mean, these were all personal motivations I had that had nothing to do with saving the planet. So, and some of that went along with uh, joining the Sea Org too. So, you know, so it's okay with me. I'm not gonna call you out as being a, you know, selfish pig. Um, because that is one of the appeals of Scientology and the Sea Org. So that's, that's what I can say about that. Polymath. Chris, do you have to start over in each of your new lives? If so, why would members spend so much time and money for such a limited use of the powers slash insights that one supposedly gains? No, the whole idea of Scientology is that you take it with you that you keep the information, that you keep the spiritual powers and awarenesses and abilities that you've gained through your Scientology auditing. But the kicker is that you have to get high enough up the bridge in order to make that happen. And you're supposed to get to full OT in one lifetime. And that means OT8 and beyond, because otherwise you could forget and the amnesia could set in again, or the between lives implants, which is the things that happen to you when you drop your, drop your body, when you die, before you go pick up a new one, you're often run through some kind of process. It's all very vague and, um, and a little uncertain as to whether it's gonna happen to you or not, but basically you get kind of a reminder that you're supposed to forget everything, <laughs> and you're already in the habit of forgetting everything after you die. You've been doing it trillions of times, so it's kind of a very, very old habit. You don't want to remember all that crap that you just went through because it's painful. It's emotionally painful. It's mentally painful. So, you know, why, why remember that stuff when you can forget it? But as a Scientologist, you're supposed to be breaking free of that whole cycle. And that was, you know, for me as a Scientologist, my own experience with this was I was very afraid of kicking off at some point before I got onto the OT levels and through them. And I used to tell myself, don't forget, man, don't fucking forget, you know? <laughs> I, was, I was like really afraid of that. And, um, but, you're, but the gains are supposed to be permanent, okay? Now, the logic of this doesn't really hold though, okay? And this is one of the weird things about the OT levels that really upset me was when you get to the OT levels, you're supposed to start handling body thetans. And these, these, these body thetans, and I'm not gonna explain all about that, if you haven't read about or seen um, you know, South Park or the OT3 thing or the numerous times I've described it, then you know, check out my other videos on that. But these body thetans are supposed to, your, your body is supposed to be composed of these things, partially at least. So when you die, even as an OT, you know, you go in, you go into auditing, you get rid of all of your body thetans, you're not, you don't have them anymore, and you are now spiritually free, and you've come to all these realizations, and you're this, you know, wonderful thetan again, and, and life is wonderful, but then your body dies, and you have to go get another body in order to interact with people and have a life, so you go get a body, and it's born, and it's got body thetans connected to it because these body thetans are all over the place and they just glom onto the body, I guess, right? This is one of these weird things in Scientology where you now have to, to de-body thetan yourself again. 
So that was one of the things that when I first read the OT levels, at least that was my understanding of what I read. And you know, if other people, you know, in Scientology, former Scientologists or, or whatever have other views of this, please let me know. But that's how I read it. And, um, and I've talked to other, other people about this and they, they thought the same thing. So, um, so that is a, is a kind of a betrayal bit, you know, from Hubbard because Hubbard says, yeah, you're, you're able to make it all in one lifetime, but really, no, you're not. Um, that was one of the things that, that really threw me off about the whole thing. So that's what I can say about that. Um, and there you go. Okay, it is time for Flash Answers. Michaela Reedmuller, Enterprise or Voyager? Neither. I watched a few episodes, I think about half a season of Enterprise, and I was completely, completely unimpressed. I've only watched like maybe half an episode of Voyager. I was just not, I just could not get into the storyline or the characters. I know a lot of people have, don't get me wrong, I'm not bashing it, I'm saying I couldn't really get into it. So on this one, it's neither one. If I had to go with one or the other, I think I would go with Voyager because the little bit that I saw of Voyager was better than the whole half season I saw of Enterprise. I was really, I, was, I just did not think that Enterprise did, it, did, did justice to the backstory of, of the Star Trek universe. Sidney Whittle. We all know that OSA monitors all the supporter groups, all the blogs, books, articles, etc. I was wondering if you know if any of these agents have had a needle prick put into their bubble after reading all the stories. Sort of like what you did when you started checking out the internet. Do you know if any of these people have had second thoughts about their beliefs and maybe left the Sea Org and eventually the church? Nope. I've never heard of one person that that happened to. And in fact, I actually interviewed Robin Capella um, a couple years ago and the interview was still on my channel under the Scientology Experience. Um, there's a little playlist of videos I put together of my interviews with former Scientologists. She was an OSA staff member. She was not Sea Org, but she worked for OSA. And she used to look at the end theta of us critics, and she said it never really got, I asked her about that, she said no, it never really got past her filters. So, you know, I, you know it, it, has that happened? I'm sure that could have happened, but I've not heard of it. So. That's what I can say about that. Brian Ruhoff. Do you know of any upcoming movies of either Paulette Cooper or any other events, i.e. blown for good? Seems like there would be a lot of good material for a good movie. I completely agree and I've heard that, you know, interest has been put on Paulette's book and on blown for good. I've actually heard of both of those having uh, had some interest put on them, but that's all I know. I have, I have no insider information, and as far as upcoming projects go, I think even if I did, I wouldn't be able to say anything about it, but I don't have any information on that. Okay, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me ramble on at a mad rate about uh, answers to your questions here. Please give any questions, comments, or feedback in the comment section below here on YouTube. I would very much like to hear what you guys uh, want to know about and uh, Scientology related or not. I'm, I'm wide open to answering anything about anything and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.